talking about the travel opening up, but the requirement that is still in place as far as testing. Vaccination rates vary considerably from one region to another within Canada. Yet, wisely, we don't require that somebody coming back from Alberta or Saskatchewan to to Ontario today should have to take a PCR test to be able to do that. That was Perrin Beattie, the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, saying it is time that Ottawa scrapped the rule that requires travellers to provide a negative COVID-19 test at the border, saying it's irrational, bad for tourism and expensive for families. Let's bring in Len Saunders, immigration lawyer, Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, what are you hearing as far as are people looking forward to the 8th of November? Or what is, what's on your radar? Well, I know a lot of the businesses in Blaine, like me, are very hopeful that there's going to be a lot of Canadians finally coming back down to you know help our businesses. But I think realistically, most people know because of this COVID test going back up to Canada, you're only going to really see people coming down for long periods of time. So I think most people are expecting for the first week just the snowbirders to be passing through town as they head south with their RVs. And so as it stands now, when with the testing that's in place right now, so when things kind of open up on November 8th, the, the biggest change then is that non-essential travelers, Canadians can go into the United States. So, but like you said, the rule there, even though our top doctor in this country says it's actively being looked at, the rule is still you need that negative PCR test to get back. Absolutely. So your average Canadian, especially in the lower mainland, is not going to come down to Whatcom County and gas up their car to save $20 or pick up their packages that have been languishing for almost two years at the mail places or go shopping for groceries if they have to get a $200 COVID test. Nobody's going to do that. So that's the big issue I think that a lot of people are struggling with, even though it's definitely a a step in the right direction for the Americans finally to be opening up the border for most Canadians. It's also, as many people have pointed out, and even doctors and health officials saying this, it makes zero sense that if you are taking a quick trip and maybe, like you said, you do have packages you have to get or you've got a property, say, in Point Roberts or somewhere that you want to go check on, you can get the test in Canada, go to the United States and then use that same test coming back into Canada, which some are saying it makes absolutely no sense because if you've been exposed to COVID-19 or you've picked it up while you're in the States, that test isn't going to show any of that. Absolutely. It's it's once again, you know, a lack of common sense, just like being able to fly into the U.S. but not drive. Both sides, both Canadian and American, you know, officials making these decisions, there's just, there seems to be a lack of consistency, a lack of common sense, a lack of coordination between the two countries. It's, It's bizarre what's been going on for the last year and a half. Uh, Do you have any confidence then when we hear from Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, saying that the policy is actively being looked at and looked at carefully? It's the same wording as when we were pushing health officials as well to look at the mixed vaccines. Uh, People like myself who had that, who weren't considered vaccinated, it did get looked at and it did, the policy did change. I mean, that was a, a policy in the United States side. But do you have any confidence that this is going to be addressed? Well, absolutely, at some point. But is it going to be addressed before Monday? I doubt it. Right? All of these decisions, they seem to be last-minute decisions. So here we are, three days away from 
basically a full reopening of the U.S. border because most Canadians are fully vaccinated. But nobody's going to take advantage of it if they have to, you know, get a negative COVID test, either on the American or the Canadian side. So, you know, at some point, the Canadian government is going to drop the COVID test. It's just a matter of when. Right. I know you mentioned this, uh, I think, when you were talking with Simi Sarah previously, that uh, you've been vaccinated for several months, but never actually asked to show any kind of proof or any kind of certificate. What can Canadians expect then if they are making that trip into Washington state or into the states? What is it like? Well, you're going to see a real mixed bag. Like where I am, you know, it's more like British Columbia. You have to wear a mask inside. You go down to King County. My wife went into a restaurant yesterday with a couple of my kids. They had to show their vaccination card. But, you know, you go to Texas where my daughter goes to law school. She hasn't worn a mask in a year. There's a real mixed bag of of enforcement in different states. It's really statewide, citywide. It changes. Literally, it's not so as consistent up in Canada down here. So I think a lot of Canadians are going to be shocked by you know, some states, there's, there's literally no masks, whereas other states, everyone wears them all over the place. So I think there's going to be a lot of surprised Canadians when they see the inconsistencies in this country. And do you know what Canadians will have to show if they're going to places like your wife went where they're checking vaccine certificates? Uh, I now have the one, the the federal government, the Canadian one for flying to to get on a plane to go to the States. Is that what we understand or is that what's going to be asked for when there are venues where people are asking for it or have to show that? Once again, there's no consistency. I think anything is accepted. I even asked them yesterday. I was at the Peace Arch Port of Entry talking to some senior officers, and I said to them, what are you guys requiring? And they said, anything that shows proof of vaccination. We don't have any kind of guidelines. If they're uncertain, they're going to take a photocopy and send it to the CDC. But there seems to be just like really no game plan, whether it's you know at the ports of entry or within the U.S., because everything was done differently down here. There was really no kind of national vaccination um, program. Right? I was vaccinated at uh, a, a clinic in Whatcom County. Some people could go to pharmacies. So there's really a mixed bag. And as you said earlier, you know, I've been traveling throughout this country a lot since I got vaccinated back in January. So it's almost been a year. I've never been asked once for my vaccination card. I carry it with me every day. I've never been asked once. That's shocking. Yeah, that is interesting. And interesting, too, is kind of the the patchwork then of what could be required at the border. Do you think, I know in the beginning, like you said, it's probably just going to be more snowboards or people that are going for longer periods of time. But do you anticipate there will be then, because there's no real consistency, there will be long lineups at the border? Well, I think there's going to be lineups during the first week. A lot of, you know, Canadians coming south to check on their properties you know, in Whatcom County or other places. So there are going to be, you know, a lot of people who have been hesitant to fly who are now going to take advantage of the reopening and probably will spend a $200 fee to get tested. But you're not going to see the the day trippers, people just coming down and going back. And it's interesting because I was also asking yesterday at the at the port of entry, you know, what are they going to ask at primary? So when you roll up as a Canadian citizen, all they ask for is a verbal declaration Jill, have you been vaccinated? Yes. Have a nice day. They're not asking for any proof other than if you happen to be sent in for a random secondary. And those don't happen very often. So they're using the honor system. So that's ripe for abuse. It just seems to be bizarre how the Americans are treating the whole 
enforcement of vaccinations versus the Canadians, where it's it's very strict going north, and if you don't comply, you will not get in. Uh, interesting. So, but what do you anticipate? What would happen then if somebody lied and said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fully vaccinated," and then if they got pulled in for secondary and were found that they weren't, that they had lied to the the border officer, would there be repercussions there? I asked that same question, and they said, "Well, at this point, we don't know. They have not been given guidance." And I said. It's four days away from the reopening. (laughs) Have you not made any plans? And the answer was, we haven't been given any instructions from headquarters. Hmm. It's bizarre. They've had a year and a half to work this out. And here we are Friday before the opening on Monday, and there's no game plan. And I'll tell you right now, from my point of view, I think CBP, the American officers, are going to look at themselves as not the vaccination police. So they're going to be more concerned whether someone has their passport whether they're admissible because of criminal convictions, I honestly don't think the American officers are going to care whether someone's vaccinated or not. That's my personal opinion, but who knows going forward on Monday? <laughs> Do you think they're still maybe going to ask, have you ever smoked marijuana in your life rather than are you fully vaccinated? I think that's going to be more of a common question. I agree. <laughs> I think that's going to be more asked than the whole vaccination because I don't think a lot of the officers themselves are vaccinated. I just that's just my personal opinion. So but who knows? I'm dying to see what happens on Monday. All right. Well, maybe we'll check back in with you on Monday if you've got the time, Lynn. But if not, we'll talk to you soon for sure. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, Jill. Have a great weekend. Well, you likely recall hearing about this yesterday. It was a big announcement having to do with the future of the Vancouver Art Gallery and the new Vancouver Art Gallery. It's been in the works for several years. The budget has grown, you could say, to about $400 million. They're still quite a ways away from getting to that amount. But there was a very big donation that was revealed yesterday, the largest ever given to a gallery in Canada. And Michael O'Dane, developer, philanthropist, and chair of the O'Dane Foundation is here to talk about why the foundation decided to give that amount of money to the art gallery. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's uh, great to talk to you. A big day yesterday uh, with the announcement. Uh, I'm curious, what does it feel like? I know you've given big gifts in the past, but what does it feel like to, whether it's signing that check or whatever the process is, to actually give away $100 million? Well, you know, I've been thinking about it for some time and discussing it with um, my family foundation, and so we we made our decision a while back. So it wasn't... uh, that big an effort to uh, to do it yesterday or not 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 at all <laughs> that's it's uh, not that big of an effort i think when people hear that though the number is just so big and you know uh jill it's so much easier to write a check than do a lot of other things in um, you know that need to be done to create a new uh, uh major civic uh, cultural amenity we we haven't had a um a major um, uh, cultural building built in downtown Vancouver in over 50 years. I guess the Queen Elizabeth Theatre was the last one. So I think it's high time that uh, Vancouver caught up to some of uh, the other Canadian cities and had a a decent uh, venue for our um, wonderful artists that we, we have in British Columbia. 
Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about what draws you to this? I know you're very involved in the art scene. You have the gallery in Whistler, but what is it specifically about the Vancouver Art Gallery and art in general that has has drawn your attention, or, or why is that so important to you? Well, I, I can't explain how I really got involved in art at a fairly early age. I'm, I'm not at all creative myself, so maybe I just envied uh, other people <laughs> who uh, c- can uh, do wonderful things in, in the art world, but, but uh, what, for whatever reason I did. And I can tell you that uh, while I've never taken any formal education in the arts, uh, the Vancouver Art Gallery has really served that role for a great many years. I've, I've been at, going uh, to the Vancouver Art Gallery, I, I figured out the other day, for over 65 years. So I've I've seen an awful lot of art, and uh, that's that's how you learn about art is by looking, looking, looking. And uh, I, I've also had the opportunity to travel fairly widely and see art elsewhere. But it's at the Vancouver Art Gallery that uh, the wonder of art has uh, made the biggest uh, contribution to uh, my life. So I, I figure that uh, I owe the um, the gallery something and would like to see it in a a more suitable building that can uh, show the art uh, in a better way, the wonderful art that that we create right here in British Columbia, as well as internationally important exhibitions. But also, and perhaps most importantly, we we need a venue that can accommodate all the the school children in Vancouver who uh, would like, uh, or their teachers would like them to be exposed to good art. Oh, and, and that's certainly something uh, the gallery CEO, uh, Anthony Kendall, was uh, on Mornings with Simi on the station earlier today and talked about that. The fact that with the space they have now, they actually have to turn school children away. They can't accommodate everybody that wants to come and see the art. So this will definitely help that once the new building gets gets built and is operational. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the revitalized design? We got a look at the new artist renderings for this building. It's changed a Lot. It's now more reflective of First Nations communities. So what are your thoughts on, on how it looks now? Well, I, I think the um, current look is uh, splendid. Um, I had some reservations about the when uh, it was first announced about having it, uh, the building uh, clad in, in wood. Um, I happened to um, uh, run a company that builds an awful lot of wood homes and uh, but I don't I uh, you know so I know something about wood and how it ages and how it has to be very well maintained over the years. So I, I was a bit taken aback that it was going to be uh, the cladding for a major civic building downtown. But uh, I, I think what what uh, I think that particularly the involvement of the uh, Salish people in, in the region has uh, made a great deal of uh, difference and. I think it will be not only a striking building, but it will be very culturally sensitive to uh, the indigenous people of, uh, of the, this area. And, and uh, also you should know that I think quite a number of changes were made internally within the building to make it more functional for the art and make it most uh, p- particularly important, more uh, community-focused. It's open to the community there's all sorts of things going to be going on in that building besides uh, looking at uh, 
at pictures on the wall, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Looking at the, um, is it a 40,000 square foot courtyard? And in the the artist's rendering, uh, you can see kind of people that have been put on the picture milling about. And and that it seems like that is the goal to have it as, as a destination, obviously, as an art gallery, but also kind of a gathering, a community place. Yes, there's going to be a, uh, I guess, a, a kind of specialized kind of uh, a preschool there, uh, focusing on the arts. There's going to be uh, all sorts of rooms for community meetings. There's going to be artist uh, studios, live-in artist studios, uh, and of course the uh, restaurant and a store and all those other things you'd expect in a in a small uh, community. Uh, with your generous donation, we know that uh, the goal for private funding has now been exceeded as far as uh, the, the goal, I think, was to raise $150 million from private donors. Uh, there's more than that now, but there is still a need uh, for money with the budget, I think, is now around $400 million. So uh, we've seen uh, some money from the, pro- the province as well as the land. Nothing from the federal government at this point, though. How important do you think it is that governments also provide funding? for projects like this? Well, well, I think it's to be expected in Canada. We, we, we tend to, to uh, build our civic uh, uh, amenities with a combination of public and, uh, and private uh, money, don't we? And by the way, uh, I think uh, I'm told they need to raise another $160 million, and uh, a good deal of that also needs to come from the private sector. There are uh, many... Um, uh, wonderful corporations in this town who haven't contributed yet. And uh, let's face it, there are many wealthy families in Vancouver who I, I think could uh, step up and, and help out and in, in follow the lead of the Chan family uh, and others um, who announced their um, donations a few years ago. And uh, certainly the federal government needs to play a role. After all, uh, Ottawa has funded a good many um, uh, major art buildings across Canada. Uh, the National Gallery, uh, which I uh, chaired the board of a few years ago, is a, a wonderful building, but uh, I, th- I think Ottawa needs to um, come to the party and, and, and do something for the um, for a new Vancouver Art Gallery. And I'm sure they will, but they just need to be prodded a bit, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the new building, you mentioned the Chan family. Uh, they donated $40 million in 2019, and the new building will still be partly named for the Chan family. Uh, I understand your name won't be on it. Why? Um, was it, was it, I know you have a, the Art Gallery in Whistler as well. Uh, do you think it's important, or is it necessary to include names of donors on buildings? Well, it, it depends uh, sometimes, but... Certainly our, our name has been on enough uh, art-related um, uh, galleries around town, and, and, uh, and, uh, and of course we have the um, wonderful small um, museum in, in, in Whistler, which is, uh, you should know, is uh, in becoming increasingly popular. So uh, there's a wonderful exhibition of Jean-Paul Riappel up there right now, but I, I hope a lot of Vancouver people will take the opportunity to, to visit but uh, yeah, it's uh, all, all. All our family wants to do is see this building built. We we don't uh, we don't uh, need any particular recognition, but we'll do anything we can to to help the project along. 
Uh, and uh, the uh, the gallery CEO again saying that it could open a, in 2026 at the earliest. Uh, are you hopeful that your donation will inspire? Like you said, there are others that maybe are considering or are able to donate to this. Are you hoping that this will inspire them to do so? Well, I, I, I certainly, yes, I uh, undoubtedly hope that. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll do my best to uh, help uh, fundraise for the um, the, the remainder of the project. I mean, uh, I absolutely will want, want to do that because um, I, myself and uh, I think so many people in the community um, will, will want to see this, uh, this happen. In a way, I, I'm looking at it as uh, let's, it's, it's both a, a project that uh, can, I think, aid the reconciliation with the indigenous people of uh, British Columbia, because their art is not going to be only featured on the outside of the building, but I, I'm sure very extensively inside. But it's also, um, let's uh, face it, a, a, a something to look forward to as we we uh, recover from this uh, terrible uh, pandemic. All right, Michael O'Dane, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it so much. Thank you, Jill. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the B.C. government says it wants to once again attempt to cool the province's red-hot real estate market. One of the ideas, introducing legislation next year that would require cooling-off periods for resale properties and newly built homes. It would be a change similar to cooling-off periods we already see in place for pre-construction sales. That would be a limited period of time where a buyer can change their mind and cancel the purchase with no or diminished legal consequences. So do we need this kind of legislation? Let's bring in Doug Gibson. He is from Stillhaven Real Estate Services. Doug, hey, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. What's your first reaction to this idea? Do we need cooling off periods? Well, you know, Jill, I'm definitely in favor of anything that's in the best interest of protecting the public, but I'm just not so sure that if this is the right uh, measure for, for hot markets. I actually think it, it might get used more in a cool market where you might have buyer remorse if they think they paid too much and the market's going down. Do you run into many clients or do you do you know of scenarios where people have, say, uh, agreed to it, made an offer, agreed to it, and then they do feel that remorse or they wish there was some way to get out of it? You know, it's actually exactly the opposite. I have people who are mostly ecstatic when they win offers, when they're in multiple offers. They're, they've been, often they've, they've tried a few times, and when they get the place that they want, they're, they're ecstatic. People do do their due diligence. So, you know, the devil's always in the details with these things. And, and of course, I'd like to see, um, you know, more of those details. But, you know, I, I thought about it in the sense of, you know, if somebody came into They've also talked about not not having um, conditions, like making sure that you have conditions. But you're really starting to mess with how the market operates. So again, if they can do this in a way that I think protects consumers, but I, I had hoped that they do it in a, in a way that was fair for everybody. Right, because when I first looked at this too, I kind of thought looked at it in that it's it's government kind of meddling in something where people I would like to think and and you would work with people all the time that yes, this is a huge investment for many many people, but they're not going into it not doing research, not not knowing what they're doing, and it's kind of their choice if they want to make an offer, if they want to do it with or without an inspection, with those kind of subjects. 
Exactly. I mean, right now we have a way to protect consumers. It's called subjects and you can have two, three, five days. I mean, you can have a subject to appraisal if you didn't want to go in with a subject to financing. You know, and it, it also, if you think about somebody, imagine somebody that uh, didn't need a subject to financing. They had all cash and they wanted to go in and the government all of a sudden says you have to have conditions. I mean, the cooling off period is a little bit different than that, but I just don't see where how this is creating any advantage for anybody or leveling the playing field. You know, what I would be more interested to see is research in, in other markets that tells us maybe an open bidding system. What does that level the playing field? But potentially that could raise prices because you could know that the the highest offer is seven thirty five. So you're gonna go seven fifty or seven forty. So, you know, whenever like you said, whenever the governments get involved in here. I, I, I just don't see them often getting it right. Uh, so that you're referencing that something else that they've talked about as well, this idea of, of getting rid of blind bidding. You kind of explained it there, but, but what, what is your response then if they did go down that route? Well, I, you know, that, that's a more interesting avenue to me to say that if everybody comes in at five o'clock, you all have to put your offers in and then we have a, a system. I mean, we have a system right now. It's called touch base where if all the inquiries come in through touch base with realtors, then I can get in touch with everybody all at the same time. So I could say everybody's offer, here's everybody's offer, but it's very complicated because if are you going to explain every little thing that's in everybody's offer? And, and, and I mean, right now, some people have different things that they'll do to make their offer more competitive. So you're kind of taking the, the free market system out of, out of, out of buying a house um, and, and I think really part of this might be more about people being frustrated because I'm wondering if this is complaint driven because people fa- feel like they made a mistake or is this complaint driven because people are frustrated because they've had to put in three or four or five offers and they haven't been able to purchase a home. Right. And then the question would be, would that actually change and, and better protect or change that from happening? Uh, can you explain a bit more when you talk about that? Are we still seeing scenarios quite often where there are multiple offers coming in for places? Absolutely, we are. But and that, that was the other thing I was going to say is that, but you know what, there's a lot of places that are selling without multiple offers. I mean, the average days on the market right now for all product is about 25 days on the market. So that's not seven days or 10 days. If you see seven or 10 days, that means it was listed. They did their, you know, few, they did their open houses. They, they had their offers presented on Monday or Tuesday, but you know, there are lots of different places to look and buy that are not in multiple offers. So I don't think that even, I, I'd be surprised if half of all product is selling with multiple offers. But in a scenario like that, when the government is talking about blind bidding and, and suggesting again that perhaps they want to get rid of that, but the way it works now, and maybe this is where some people are maybe thinking, um, maybe they're, they're, they're thinking that, that realtors maybe are trying to pull a fast one or, or get away with something in that you have a client, you have, say, a scenario where there are five bids, your client really, really wants this place. How much can you tell them about the other bids and let them know where they are and still do that in this blind bidding process? Well, as the buyer's agent, you can't. I mean, I think where, where you know, some people might think there's unscrupulous realtors out there. I mean, that, that of course, could exist. But you now have to keep all the offers on file at your, your brokerage. So if somebody 
you know, right now, actually, Jill, the other thing they could do is mandate that they let you know how many offers there are. Now, most listing agents will let you know how many offers there are because that's an advantage for the seller because generally the more offers there are, the more that somebody will bring in a higher bid. But right now, the rules are such that you only need to tell people that there are multiple offers. So if there's one or sorry, if there's two or seven, you don't have to tell them that there's seven offers. So I think it would be you know, to more advantageous to say there's this many, there's X many offers on the table. And we also have to explain whether there's our own offer, which would be a, a, a case where we're not representing a client anymore because we can't represent both a buyer and a seller. So they've taken that aspect of what some people would perceive was unfair, where I could have my own offer on a multiple offer on my listing. And some people would say, well, then you could just see all the offers and call your buyer and tell them, pump it up by five grand and you'll get it. We can't do that anymore. Right. And when we talk as well about kind of the the cooling off period and the fact that there already are are kind of mechanisms in there, are you still seeing scenarios where people are going in with no subjects and doing that? Maybe, Maybe not because they're super comfortable doing that, but doing that because they think it's the only way to get the place? Well, I mean, I guess that could be the case. I mean, for myself with my clients, and I think a lot of the good realtors that I work with, we would do everything we can to mitigate that sense of maybe not being protected. I mean, you you generally have the opportunity to do an inspection ahead of time. And with strata, you have the chance to read through all the strata minutes ahead of time. Um, and you have a chance to talk to your mortgage broker and get them to go through pretty much 90% of the approval um, to to get the place pre-approved. See, you don't act, you know, the one stressor is, I think, if, if you don't know that you're going to get the financing, but we, we're very rarely seeing people not get their financing on these multiple offer topics. I mean, people are, you know, if you're over $2 million, you've got to be 35% down, you know, even less than that. So there's a large down payment. There's large amounts of money going into these, into these transactions that are that are keeping people people protected and i would never and i think most realtors would not want to put their their clients in a position where they're going to not get their financing so there's quite a lot of due diligence that goes into this i think this has more to do with people feeling frustrated which is a supply issue which is something that you know the real estate board is talking about with perhaps utilizing a bit of the property transfer tax that they're, you know, the government collects over a billion dollars a year in property transfer tax. And I bet you it's going to be more this year because there's more sales and maybe using a bit of that to help ease the supply issue, which is what we have right now. All right, Doug, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate your time. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, it is the weekend and we talked about this a little bit last week, but clocks are going to fall back an hour this weekend. And while it's generally more onerous on people, we talk more about the dangers of that when we spring forward and lose that hour. There can be concerns falling back as well. And joining us to talk more about this is Wendy Hall, Professor Emerita with the School of Nursing at UBC. Wendy, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. What kinds of uh, actual health concerns are related or can we connect with these seasonal time changes? Well, it's really interesting that many international sleep organizations have advocated for an end to these transitions to and from daylight savings time because it 
uh, it contributes to a lack of alignment between our biological clocks and the light-dark cycle. And so we want to avoid our eating and sleeping being out of synchrony with our internal clocks because we have one in the brain and one in every cell in our bodies. And that lack of synchrony happens in the fall when we return to standard time and in the spring when we move to daylight savings. And what actually happens to us? Because some people might say, oh, it's fine, I don't feel any different. Uh, maybe uh, people who are shift workers who are, aren't, were, aren't used to getting, say, the same number of hours or the same hours of sleep every night. But what's physically happening to us? Well, when we return to standard time, people, including children, wake up earlier in the morning, have more trouble falling asleep because our internal clocks are telling us it's not time to go to sleep yet and are more likely to wake up during the night. And there's little evidence of extra sleep on the night of the time change. And experts believe that the additive effect of these earlier rise times and longer times to fall asleep suggests a net loss of sleep across the first week after the time change. And we know that insufficient sleep is linked to inattention, poor focusing, and difficulty monitoring our behavior, which can result in more risk-taking. Hmm. And so do you, does it not make sense then when people look at this as a weekend where we get that extra hour of sleep? Well, apparently <laughs> the view is that really people don't get that extra hour um, because they, there's little evidence that that actually works out for people. I mean, what would really need to happen for us to get prepared for this is to go to bed um, a little bit later each night so that uh, we were um, getting ourselves adjusted to the new change and wake up uh, about 15 minutes later in the morning just so that we don't lose that hour of sleep. Because often what people think is, oh, we get an extra hour tonight, so they actually stay up a bit later on the night of the chime change, and then that's just going to contribute to their loss of sleep for that first week after the time change happens. Right. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are people that do that, but I've, I've certainly never met anybody who takes it that seriously that they'd make those changes like you just mentioned to make it so uh, the, the, uh, you don't actually notice it or that you're, you're doing the best for your internal clock. Yeah. No, you're right. Most people don't. <laughs> And so, you know, we have to deal with the the consequences of that, which are, you know, at this time of year, we have short daylight hours in the Northern Hemisphere, and that does correspond with our change from daylight savings to standard time. So there's more light in the morning with standard time and less evening light. And if people aren't, apparently, it it affects larks less than it affects owls. So Mm -hmm. a lark is somebody who goes to bed early and gets up early in the morning, and an owl is somebody who likes to stay up late at night and get up later in the day. And for those people, they're getting very little exposure uh, to light in the morning. So, um, and that, and, and of course, because they're getting little exposure to light in the morning, and it gets darker earlier in the evening, they're getting less exposure to light full stop. And so there tends to be higher rates of depression when we um, move from, Uh, daylight savings to standard time, along with the shorter days, like almost uh, seasonal affective disorder effects. Hmm. If we were to choose then, because certainly there's a lot of discussion about just picking one and staying there permanently, is there a better time if we were to do that, standard time or daylight saving time, is one better than the other if we were to finally make that decision? That's a great question, uh, Jill. And with all the sleep 
societies are saying. So it's the American Association of Sleep um, Medicine, uh, the Canadian Sleep Society, the European Sleep Societies. They're all changing. They're all saying that if we give up this time change, this shift that goes on, which they think we should, we should go to standard time, not daylight savings time. And that would be better health-wise, our bodies, that's kind of more in line with our clocks? Exactly. Well, that's a very um, astute observation (laughs) on your part. So, yeah, because daylight uh, savings time um, is really does not permit our clock to be in in concert with what's going on with the light, uh, external light during the day and during the night. So we end up with what we call social jet lag, where you end up sort of increasing your proneness to lateness going to sleep, but you still have to get up at the same time in the morning because we all have to still get up for work, go to school, all those things. So this social jet lag happens because our early morning demands don't change, even though we're pushed later at night to go to sleep. And there's more risk of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, smoking, alcohol and caffeine consumption. So there's a lot of reasons why we really don't want to be on permanent daylight savings time. And do you think when, when we talk about this, do people, and we kind of touched on this, say pilots and flight attendants and people who work where they're constantly going into different time zones so, or people who just have different schedules, say you're a shift worker and you do one shift for a couple of weeks and then change your shift, do they do they all, do they suffer these effects all the time or or how would that work as far as somebody that that is kind of always going through time changes it's really hard on them i mean i worked nights uh for several years where i worked uh four weeks of nights to one week of days hmm. and it was typical that i would fall asleep at a party or <laughs> at uh, a movie <laughs> because i was so tired and and so out of sync with my circadian rhythms when I had to switch back to days that it was uh, a real killer for me. So um, that does have an impact on people. I think the the distinction is that if we went to daylight savings time, we would be in per- that permanent social jet lag. Whereas even though it's really hard on people to work shifts and to uh, have these time changes, as you've said, for flight attendants and pilots, they're not permanently in these social jet lag situations. Uh, so uh, anyone listening to this uh, that already uh, it's too late to start those little changes that you mentioned to try and ease the change of the time and to our, our impact, the impact it has, our reaction to it. What should someone do or what might be a tip for adjusting as we are all? I think uh, f- there are some clocks that automatically change. They're going to change while we're asleep and we're going to wake up that way on Sunday. You got it. Um, Well, no one's going to like to hear this, but um, what I would recommend is avoiding um, blue light from screens in the late evening hours because that's going to increase your likelihood of pushing your bedtime back. Trying to limit your caffeine past 3 p.m. in the afternoon uh, because that affects your ability to go to sleep. Uh, Really trying to get exposure to outside light in the morning. That's not easy in Vancouver because it's so gloomy. Mm But you really need to do that as much as you possibly can to help you reset your biological clock. And um, also, some people use light boxes or lights in the morning to help them with that sense of that seasonal affective uh, disorder that happens to people when the the light levels are shorter at this time of year. Uh, Do the light boxes work or or is that something you think that that people could benefit from? They do work. you have to be careful that you pay attention to the amount of lux you're um, 
exposing yourself to. So it would be better if you plan to do something like that, like use the light box to try and do that in concert with someone recommending it for you and advising you about what kind of a light box you should get rather than just going and buying it on your own and and going for it. All right. Good advice as once again, we prepare to fall back this weekend. Uh, Dr. Wendy Hall, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Jill. Appreciate your interest. Right now, we are checking in with Mitch Cook, who is a Nanus Bay man. He is trying to break a Guinness World Record and Mitch is on the line with us now. Hey, Mitch. Bill, how are you? I'm very well. How about you? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me on today. <laughs> well, this is a fun story. You are attempting to break the Guinness World Record for the number of burpees. Uh, for anybody out there that doesn't know what a burpee is, can you explain it? Yeah, so, so the world record I'm trying to break, as you said, is the for the most chest-to-ground burpees uh, in one hour. Um, the current record right now is 951. Um, that's held by a man who lives out of Singapore. Um, but basically how a burpee is performed is you start with your chest on the ground and your arms out to the side. Um, your feet then have to pass two lines. Um, the distance between the two lines is half of your height. Um, and then once your feet have come uh, met to your hands, you then um, jump into the air and then your feet will obviously return to the ground and then your, you'll jump backwards and your feet will return uh, to the second line. And then you perform a push-up, and then your arms will go out to the side uh, once again, and that's uh, one repetition. <laughs> and you make it sound a lot more fun than it actually is. I don't know anybody that actually enjoys doing them. Yeah, <laughs> I get that quite a lot, but uh, I've learned to uh, I've learned to love them, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, so how did this come about? You decided you wanted to try and break the Guinness World Record. Yeah, I mean, I've always been into sports and always been a very fit person, um, and I used to play uh, quite a high level of hockey. So once I stopped playing hockey, I was always kind of looking for something to to work towards because I missed that kind of competitive aspect of fitness. Um, So I came across the the world record uh, for burpees, and I've always had really good cardio. So I thought that, uh, that it would be a good one for me to try to go for. So uh, that's kind of how it came about. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I understand as well, though, you put the application in, you, you let the Guinness people know you wanted to do this. And in that short time since then, somebody else already broke the record. So you have to do more now. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's right. When, when I first sent my application in, the record that um, the record that was at that point was 871. Um, but then, as you said, obviously, it got broken to 951. So that's the, the number I have to beat later on tonight. Uh, have you been practicing doing as many as you can in one hour? Yeah, I mean, in my training, I've been basically just finishing up now uh, 20 weeks of training. Um, you know, that that's consisted of obviously doing burpees themselves, um, along with um, breathing training to work on my cardiovascular system, um, strength, strength training to obviously strengthen my shoulders, um, biceps, triceps, and chest. Um, and obviously my legs as well. So it's been a it's been a long twenty weeks, but um, I'm ready to tackle it and, and beat that record tonight. Have you in your training been able to be- beat the record? No, I have not in my training. No, but um, that's with obviously uh, not having any days rest prior. <laughs> so I feel like with the adjustments I've made um, and with my rest period and recovery, I'll definitely have to get the job done tonight. All right. I understand. Also, there's a charity aspect to this, or you're doing this for a particular foundation. Yeah, so I'm raising money for fallen RCMP members. I'm partnering up with the National Police Federation. Um, They basically have a benevolent foundation that assists um, 
befallen uh, members' families when um, they have a member who dies on duty or off duty. Um, they support them um, financially in the in the tough years to follow. Oh, that's a, a great uh, um, a great foundation or a great. I would imagine it's a good motivation for you as well to try and and do this. Yeah, I have a brother in the RCMP, so it's quite close home to me. Um, he he works out of none of it. Um, so uh, it's you know when when I kind of was coming up with a, that I wanted to take on this this fitness challenge, I definitely wanted to raise money for something. So we kind of got together and uh, came up with the the Benevolent Foundation. So you have to now, just to reiterate, the record is now sitting at 951. So you have to do 952 burpees in one hour. Uh, when and where are you going to do this? Yes, well, that's right. Yeah, I got to beat that 951. Um, and it's actually being held tonight um, at 6 p.m. Um, at the Noose, the, the New, sorry, the Nanoose Bay Community uh, Center here on Vancouver Island. And are you anticipating, are people going to come out and watch or cheer you on? Or is that too much pressure? Uh, no, no. If, if you live locally, definitely come out. Um, you're more than welcome. Spectators are definitely welcome, um, as long as they're wearing a mask um, and have, they have to show proof of uh, double vaccination. Um, if you uh, if you can't make it, um, you can always uh, watch live on my Instagram as well. That's always an option. Okay, what's the Instagram that people can see it at? My Instagram's mcook.fit, so M-C-O-O-K dot FIT, and I'll be having a live video um, feed for that. All right, and I would imagine you need to have an official counter there to then submit to Guinness. Yes, so I have a, I have quite a few uh, members of my team. I have to have two independent witnesses. Um, one of them has to be um, specialized in uh, physical fitness. Um, along with, I have another. Um, witness and he is going to be the counter along with I have a video crew where there will be basically two cameras set up uh, making sure that my feet are crossing the lines and that I'm touching the ground each time on uh, my repetitions. All right well good luck Mitch I have full confidence that you can do this lots of people will be cheering you on maybe we can have you back on the show when you get into the Guinness Book of Records. Yes that would be great thanks so much for the time today Jill.